it's always a lovely thing when the Lord ordains that the service be planned in such a manner that things kind of just naturally link together and especially the case when those who are involved in the service don't necessarily communicate with one another. And I'm not saying that in a negative way, it's just that the song that Bob has led us in is so appropriate uh, in light of the story that I want to tell you this morning because uh, the lines there in Psalm 23 about walking through the valley of the shadow of death are so very relevant to a story that I heard something like 25 years ago. You had that experience where you hear a story or where you hear someone speak about something and it just sticks with you and you look back on it in years and you think, wow, that is such an impressive and, uh, uh, and impressive uh, experience. This happened while I was at Bible College, I think it was around 1997, something like that, when we had a visit from a speaker, uh, his name, if we could pop his face up there on the screen, uh, was Frank Retief. Uh, and we'll just have to go back a couple of pages there, um, Isaac, to get uh, get this fellow up. Here we go. We'll get there eventually. Uh, Frank Retief is the Bishop of St James Church in South Africa, Cape Town, a little suburb called Kenilworth. And he was the pastor there for quite a number of years. In fact, I think they established the church in around about 1967 or 1969, had grown the church significantly to the point where it was quite a large church. And it existed there in Cape Town during a time of significant political unrest in the nation towards the end of the 1990s when the whole system of apartheid was being undone and the nation was reshaping and there were all sorts of special interest groups that were prosecuting their agendas, some of them using very, very significant and violent means to do so. And on the evening of the 25th, uh, sorry, the 23rd of July 1993, uh, Frank's church had gathered, it was a rainy uh, night, there was just over a thousand people in the church when four armed gunmen came in through the door and started to spray the congregation with their automatic uh, weapons, a couple of hand grenades thrown into the midst of the congregation. You can imagine the carnage that resulted uh, as a result of that attack. Now, I'm not going to describe it to you because we've got children here and I'm certainly not going to show you any pictures. We're not going to show you any pictures at all by the looks of it. <laughs> but uh, it was devastating, absolutely devastating. In the aftermath, something in the order of 11 people died, 58 people were injured. Frank and his wife Beulah had just come back from a short holiday in London and so had, not de had decided not to go to church that night. Uh, their children had, their two children had. And so you can imagine his anxiety when he received the call. He made his way straight to the church and uh, found utter devastation emergency services were there, the media were there, he had no idea where his children were, there were people being worked on, literally worked on uh, in terms of the paramedics were working on them in the aisles. Uh, it was total confusion and uh, there was just nothing that Frank could do in that space but wonder where his children were and wonder how on earth the church was ever going to get through this absolutely traumatic experience. The story, if you're interested, is actually online. You can uh, just search Frank Retief. You'll find this story. He tells this story. 
And the story that he tells is quite remarkable because it doesn't just focus on the events, it focuses very, very specifically on the aftermath, what happened in the days and weeks following. Because even in the moment when the media was shoving their cameras in the faces of people who were experiencing extreme trauma, the message of the church was grace and forgiveness. There's one fellow in particular Frank was talking about, and I can't remember his name, who, who had lost family members and the cameras were in his face and he said, I don't know who you are, I don't know why you did this, but because I'm a Christian I want you to know that I will forgive. And that message was sent out through the whole nation because in that moment every television station in the country stopped whatever they were uh, transmitting, went live to the events at St James and so this message went out to everybody. And Frank said something that hit me so solidly, it stayed with me for the 25 years or so since I heard this story and it actually shapes the way I read 1 Thessalonians, it shapes the way I read stories of the New Testament church. He said, if I had been tasked with the job of communicating the message of the gospel to the whole of the nation, what would I have done? Now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? If we here at Wodongran District Baptist Church were tasked with the job of getting the message of the gospel to the whole of Victoria, what would we do? Or the whole of New South Wales? Oh, no, let's, not make, let's make it easier than that. The whole of Albury-Wodonga, what would we do? What's the first thing we would do? I'd be scratching my head thinking, we've got to get in a big name speaker, right? Who's the biggest name speaker? We've got to hire the largest venue that we can find. We're going to have to sink thousands of dollars into advertising. We're going to need to put stuff on the radio. We're going to use the media. We're going to have television, all that stuff. We're going to print brochures. We're going to drop them off at every uh, door there is in both of our cities. We're going to go and saturate the place. We'll have prayer groups operating here, there and everywhere. And Frank said, that's the kind of response that I had. If my job was to reach the whole of South Africa, that's what I would have done. But how did God do it? By allowing four terrorists to come into my church on that rainy Sunday night and reap havoc. And the message of grace and love and forgiveness went out to the nation. Of course, the church had to address some really deep questions and there were some very, very deep questions. How could a loving God allow such a thing to happen? That's a question, isn't it? How could God allow a worshipping congregation to experience such trauma? The church had to deal with the trauma and the grief and the loss that devastated so many people. But they realised that out of the destruction of that night, the message of God's love was proclaimed in a way to the nation, in a way, sorry, it was proclaimed to the nation in a way that had never been proclaimed before. And when I was first sketching out the plan for us to preach our way through 1 Thessalonians, I looked at this passage and I put a title beside it, God's plan to change the world. That's kind of like a big picture idea, isn't it? What is God's plan to change the world? And the story that I've just told you came to mind because God does it by the most unusual of means. For goodness sake, he's asked us to do it. How weird is that? What a strange God we have, that he would use you and I, ordinary kind of people, with all of our faults and our failings, to actually change the world. And so as we look at 1 Thessalonians, and in fact 
2 Thessalonians, we see this plan being worked out. There's rather, some rather interesting parallels between the church in uh, Thessalonica and the church that I've just described there in South Africa because if we go to our text, we actually will discover that the church in Thessalonica was also experiencing persecution. It was not an easy place to be a Christian. In fact, if you go to uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, you'll see there that the, uh, the gospel had been welcomed in the midst of great suffering. That's in chapter 1, verse 6. You became imitators of us and the Lord in spite of severe suffering, Paul says. Really difficult stuff. But at the same time, Paul says, your witness rang out. Now, that's an interesting word in the language. It's not often used in the Bible. In fact, I can't find anywhere else where that phrase is used. But in the secular literature of the time, that word rang out means your message has kind of gone out like a clap of thunder. Remember we had a cracker of a thunderstorm a week and a half or so ago? At least in some parts, thunderstorms are always very localised, aren't they? But if you're right underneath one, you know you're alive. I still remember on one occasion when Laura was a very small girl, I was walking from my office across to our administration office uh, where I was working at the time and we regularly had afternoon thunderstorms and here we were, you know, she was kind of sitting up on my shoulders and then out of nowhere, bang! It's like light and sound all at the same time. That's when you know it's close. And we both jumped and we both kind of checked that we were alive. Uh, but that's what it means that this message from the Thessalonians, their life in Christ rang out like a clap of thunder, like a loud trumpet and it was being heard everywhere because of their life and witness. Now, the question I want to ask today is this. What are some of the ingredients that we might find in a church that God will use to change the world? Not just Melrose Drive or West Wodonga or Wodonga or Aubrey Wodonga. What are the ingredients that we'll find in a church that God will use to change the world that we're part of? And I'm going to offer to you four from this passage. So I'm not sure, Isaac, we're going to be able to whack up the screen or not. Let's have a look. Here we go. Let's start with verses 2 and 3. The first principle, faith, hope and love expressed in context. Now, Paul starts his letters uh, oftentimes with a prayer and it's really significant because it's lovely when you know what other people are praying for, isn't it? I actually find it really encouraging, and I'm sure you do too, if someone who has been praying for you comes along and says, I've been praying for you that, da-da-da-da-da, whatever it might be. Isn't it lovely? Isn't it encouraging when someone actually affirms you in that space? If we had plenty of time this morning, we'd stop and pray for one another and then we could do that, talk about what it was you prayed for. But let me just encourage you to consider doing that. Not only praying for someone else, but let them know what it is that you've been praying for. It's a real boost and Paul and his companions had remembered before God three key elements that characterised the life of the Thessalonian church. Their faith, their love and their hope. Now those words should sort of ring some bells for us uh, because these ideal qualities are mentioned frequently throughout the New Testament. If you want to take some notes, you'll find Paul speaks of them in Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 a good chapter on love, in Galatians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 1 and then Peter speaks about them in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. And I suspect that Paul 
um, spoke about these things because, in actual fact, he was quite fearful for the Thessalonians' faith. He was a, an infant church, a new church, a recently established church, who were undergoing severe stress and trials. If you weren't there and you were their pastor, what would you be wondering? You'd be wondering how they're going, wouldn't you? Are they standing up? Are they persevering? Are they being able to stick it out? And the Thessalonians had demonstrated a recognisable and genuine Christian character. Their faith, their love and their hope gave rise to some actions. Now we know the Bible teaches that we're justified by faith, that we've gained access to God through Christ by faith. Faith plays a critical role in our relationship with God and it stands in place of any efforts that we might make to get closer to God. We know that we cannot become Christians by our good works. It's by faith that we are accredited with righteousness. But faith also gives birth to work, love into service of others and hope in the ability to endure, to be resilient in the face of tests and trials. What does this mean in practice? Well, let me give you an illustration. Just um, yesterday morning, it was very similar to what it's like out there at the moment. It was kind of a bit foggy and sort of half drizzly and I thought in a moment of perhaps foolhardiness, this will be a good day for a bike ride. <laughs> and so off I set. And uh, typically I kind of work on a circuit somewhere. Yesterday it was just up around Indigo Valley, up the hills, uh, and, and did actually get thoroughly wet as I kind of half expected and very cold, which I didn't kind of expect because when you're working hard, you're generally warm. But here's an interesting observation. Um, when you're on flat country, you can kind of move along reasonably fast. When I get up into the hills, I start going a bit slower and it's when I'm going a bit slower that two things happen. One, I start looking around, taking notice of what's around me. The other thing I tend to do is have a look around with a view to thinking, if I do run out of energy here, where's a good place to lie down? <laughs> and it, <laughs> as I was thinking about this, it actually did happen once. Uh, some years ago I was riding from, uh, well, let me just say, from uh, Warrnambool through to Apollo Bay, it's about 160 k's. Halfway up Lavers Hill, totally ran out of energy. There's a cycling term for it, it's uh, you bonk. It means that you, you just, your energy just disappears. And just as I was getting up towards the, um, the transmission fire tower up there on Lavers Hill, the whole world started to go grey, really weird. And the peripheral vision starts to disappear. And the body just says, I ain't going any further today. And it was every effort to get off the bike and lie down. I went to sleep straight away on the grass, just like that. <laughs> weird. And after about half an hour, I sort of managed to drag myself to Lavers Hill had a toasted sandwich and I was good after that. But yesterday, one of the things I took notice of was the amount of rubbish there is along the sides of our roads. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever contributed to that? Don't answer that question. <laughs> because I don't understand why it is that some people can be driving along and you know, enjoying their, are we allowed to say brand names? Uh, yes, we can. Enjoying their KFC or their Maccas or whatever. And when they finished, out the window, the packaging goes. You would not believe the number of cans and bottles and papers and boxes and stuff that comes out of cars, let alone the junk that blows off the back of people's trailers, you know, timber and uh, masonry and 
and uh, a plasterboard and all of that kind of stuff. And I look at all of this rubbish and I think, wow, this is unbelievable. And generally, I think our response is, the council should do something about that, right? The government should send some people out here to pick all this up. I had a friend a few years ago whose name happens to be David as well. They're a very popular breed. Um, he lived in town, he had a farm about 20 kilometres out of town and so typically what he would do in his bright yellow truck, he had a sort of a, one of those little Isuzu trucks, uh, he would drive out to his farm, do his day's work, he'd drive part way home, he would park his truck and then he would walk along the road reserve with a produce bag, maybe two or three hundred metres, maybe further on one side, picking up the stuff He'd walk back the other way, picking up the stuff, chuck it in his truck and dump it. The next day, the next place along, he'd stop, he'd do the same. Over a number of years, because he was a Christian and because he felt that he wanted to look after God's environment and contribute to his community and to the overall kind of ambience of where he lived, he kept a whole highway clean. No one asked him to do it. No one gave him any credit for it. It was a practical expression of his faith. What a wonderful expression. Never asked for thanks, never asked for accolades, probably never had anyone tell his story. And yet his faith, faith in Christ gave birth to these wonderful works of service. Faith, hope and love are not passive qualities. Paul never understands them as that. And although the object of the Thessalonians' faith was God, their faith was given active expression in their work. In fact, if we jump ahead into 2 Thessalonians, Paul prays for them and, it, and he says that God might count them worthy of his calling and that by his power God may fulfil every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. In other words, that God would bless those things that they did. And as I've said, we know that the scripture speaks about the fact that faith, uh, it's faith that saves us, not works. And Paul says this explicitly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. But in verse 10 he says, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so you can see this principle, this first principle that we're looking at here, faith, hope and love expressed in conduct is a manner, is, is a tool that God uses to transform the world, the acts of his people as they express their faith. The second one you'll find in verse 4, people chosen by God. This is, a, uh, this is one that for some people might be a potential landmine even because I know even speaking to some of our guys that are doing some study at the moment uh, people who go to Bible college love to get their teeth into the question of God's choosing, predestination and election and all of that kind of uh, conversation. Paul is convinced that God has chosen these people because he can see the evidence of that choosing and it's described for us here in verse 5 because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction let me just give you three observations about what being chosen by God means just remember that you too have been chosen by God God has chosen you what does it mean just three very simple observations first of all it should be a great comfort to us 
In Romans 8 verse 28, Paul says, In everything God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. In the following two verses, uh, Paul speaks about those who God foreknew, having been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son and having been called are justified and glorified. This should be an encouragement because in all circumstances, in every context when God calls, he calls to bless, he calls to love, he calls to be present with us. And so being chosen by God ought to be a great comfort to us. God always acts for the good of his people. Our being chosen by God, the second thing, uh, ought to be a reason to praise God. And we see this here in verse 2. It ought to give rise to the praise of God, the fact that he's chosen us. And the third thing, it ought to be an encouragement to evangelism. Now let me explain why. How many people like fishing out at the lake? There's one or two embarrassed hands going up. Yeah, there's a few people, all right. I'm not much of a fisherman. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about fishing, but occasionally I'll sit out there and I'll do some math in my head. You see, I'm interested in how much water is in the lake. It's like millions and millions of litres, and I wonder how many fish there are. And I speculate on how many fish there are to how many litres of water and how you actually figure out the manner in which you're going to catch a fish in that amount of water, right? It's weird, I know, but that's okay. (laughs) And if somebody here said to me, Dave, would you like to come fishing? I will go with the hope that I'll catch fish but I'm not going to go and say to Diana, don't prepare anything for tea, I'll bring it home, right? That would be a mistake. But here's what God says. The whole doctrine of choosing, the the fact that God has chosen some for salvation, says to us there are people who are yet to come to the Lord. And so when God says, I want to make you fishers of men, he pretty much guarantees that there are going to be people out there to be caught. You think about that for a second. God has actually ordained that there will be people ready to be caught. Our task is to go out and go fishing. There's some encouragement, isn't it? We're not going to go like me, for instance, with my fishing rod down to the river and fish for days and days and days and days and all I catch is a cold. God's pretty much said to us, you know, if we go out faithfully uh, fulfilling the Great Commission, there will be people ready to be caught. And so this doctrine of being chosen is actually an encouragement for us to go fishing. The third one, let's jump ahead. Verses 5b, the second half of verse 5 to verse 7, Paul speaks about being imitators of Christ. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Paul and his companions lived a transparent Christian life. And this is really significant because this transparency, the way they lived, was imitated by the Thessalonians. I'll say more about this next week because uh, that message, the message next Sunday, will be about imitating Christ as, as uh, the scripture speaks there. But significantly for the moment, the bottom line is if we're going to be part of God's plan to change the world, we need to imitate Christ and there needs to be consistency between our message and our behaviour. There's an old saying that I really like and that goes like this, you can't speak good news and be bad news. You can't speak good news and be bad news. And we jump then to verse 9, the fourth principle or the fourth kind of guiding 
uh, or overarching idea behind being a church that God uses to transform the world we find here in verse 9 and that is that the Thessalonians had totally reformed their worldview. Now for those of you who are wondering what on earth is a worldview, it's the way we look at the world, it's the way we interpret our culture, it's the way we do things. Oftentimes we do it without even realising that we have a worldview, but we all do. And in verse 9 Paul spoke about how the Thessalonians had turned away from the idols that they used to worship and turned to the living God and we should never underestimate the significance of that change for in that time it was unheard of and let me just say it wasn't actually all that popular either in fact the church was being persecuted predominantly because they had turned away from the idols uh, we could talk about pandemics I know that's a bit of a dirty word but in the early centuries when some of the pandemics ran through the Roman world the Christians were often blamed and one of the reasons they were blamed was because we pagans think that the gods are angry it's your fault that we're experiencing this bad stuff you know you've turned away you've changed your worldview and of all of the elements that I've spoken of here this morning faith hope and love expressed in conduct being a people chosen by God being imitators of Christ I reckon the fourth one's one of the most challenging for us in this day and age because there's been a blurring between what the church believes and teaches and the world hasn't there and it's not that the world's changed let me um, finish by taking you this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 18 it's, it's a really fascinating little story and probably one that uh, we won't come to in terms of preaching for some time but it's a fascinating little story written in the context of the conflict that there was between uh, David and his son Absalom. You know Absalom had great aspirations of being the king, had gathered around him pretty much all of Israel. He was an attractive guy, he was obviously a great speaker and charismatic in his, uh, in his manner and style. Um, David who had maintained the, uh, what's the word, the uh, loyalty of some of his uh, trusted generals they were in conflict these two groups and the story of Absalom's death as it's told in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 18 is a really sad one a father and son in conflict uh, uh, the armies that went out to fight in the forest of Ephraim this is one of the classic classic stories um, there the army of Israel this is 2 Samuel chapter 18 verse 7 there the army of Israel was defeated by David's men and the casualties that day were great 20,000 men the battle spread out over the whole countryside and the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword that is an amazing statement isn't it you know this forest was so thick impenetrable easy to get lost in and Absalom happened to meet David's men he was riding as he's as he was riding a mule that went under the branches of a thick oak tree and Absalom got caught this is not a great kids story is it sorry Bethany Do you, have you done this one in kids church it's a winner you want to try it sometime <laughs> uh, and there he was hanging in a tree Whew. along came David's men we know that it didn't end well for Absalom and uh, Joab who was one of David's commanders um, decided he better let the king know David was back uh, in the city and there was a chap by the name of Ahimaaz son of Zadok who said let me run 
and take the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. You see, in those days, they didn't have radios or telephones or mobiles or any of those things. You wanted to get a message from here back to the king, what did you do? You sent a messenger. Greek word angel. Uh, And the messenger would run. Ahimaaz said, let me go, let me go. I want to be the one. And um, for whatever reason, Joab said, you're not the one to take the news today. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today because the king's son is dead. You see, Joab was smart enough to know that David's heart would be deeply traumatised by this news. And so he had to get the person to take the message who was going to be able to deliver it appropriately. And Ahimaaz was not the one to do that. Joab said to a Cushite, go and tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, come what may, let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab said, my son, why do you want to go? You don't have any good news that will bring you a reward. And he said, well, come what may, I want to run. And Joab said, well, whatever, off you go. And then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plane. He actually outran the Cushite. He got there first. And while David, we're down to verse 24, while David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. And the king said, if he is alone, he must have good news. A little bit of wishful thinking, perhaps. And the man came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another man running and he called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. The king said, he must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, it seems to me that the first one runs like a him as son of Zadok. That's an interesting statement too, isn't it? How do you actually recognise a person? You know, in our culture, we look at their eyes, their faces, their teeth. That's the only way we used to be able to recognise some of our friends in Papua New Guinea at night time. Couldn't see anything else, but you could tell. Seriously, you could tell by their teeth who it was. And did you know, just as a totally distracting moment, a fun fact or a furious fact or a spurious fact, there are governments in our world developing software that actually can tell who a person is by the way they walk. Very dangerous. Anyway, um, it's not new technology. The watchman saw uh, this guy. It looks like the first one runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. He's a good man, said the king. He comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my lord, the king. And the king said, is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahimaaz said, I saw great confusion just as Job was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. And so the king said to Ahimaaz, stand aside. Stand aside. Ahimaaz had run without a message. It's a sad story. Here's this guy who was so desperate to run, he wanted to run, he had the capacity to run, but he ran without a message and the application that I see in this is the risk that we face as a church we make little compromises for the sake of making our message acceptable to the world small concessions so that people don't think that we're from another planet you know little things that we're prepared to just shape so that it's a little more acceptable less distasteful 
In my Sunday school days, we used to sing a song that had the line in it that went like this, they will know we are Christians by our love. And my question sometimes today is, will they know we're Christians at all? There's a challenge, isn't it? A few years ago, I've shared this story with some of you, I sat down one day in my office with a minister from another denomination. It was a most interesting conversation. Um, not so many years prior, someone, one of his colleagues actually in the same town had written some stuff in our newspaper which pretty much did away with the need of Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus was a good man, uh, he upset the Romans and so they killed him, end of story. And this chap sat down with me and he said, you know in my church we are so good at caring for people who are hungry and looking after people who need somewhere to live and stuff. We've, social gospel, we are over it. We are not over it as in we are, we are, we've got it covered. But we haven't got any theology of evangelism because we've forgotten the gospel. And I thought, man, this is a hammerhaz all over again, running without a message. And there's a challenge, isn't it? Four things that we've reflected on here from the Thessalonian church. How are we going with Dongan District Baptist Church? Faith, hope and love expressed in our conduct? I can't answer that question for you. That's a question you'll need to answer for yourself. People chosen by God, what does that mean? What does that look like? Imitators of Christ, does our character match that which we believe? And a reformed worldview, are we prepared to stand on truth even though the world around us is shouting us down in some of those areas? Well, next week we will continue our journey through uh, this book of Thessalonians and speak a little bit more about what it means to be imitators of Christ. But for the moment, let's take a, a second or two to reflect on that. We'll pray. I'm going to ask Bob to come and sing. After that, we're going to cut the live stream and uh, then just take a few moments to reflect on some of the ministry that David and Eliza are involved in. But let's pray together. Father, it's a very confronting story, the story there about Ahimaaz, a man who ran without a message. It's confronting because there are times, perhaps, Lord, when we, even corporately as a church, can be really busy and look busy and be involved in so all sorts of activities, do all sorts of things and forget what we're actually here for. Because, Lord, we do fill up our timetables with stuff, with activity, with busyness. But we pray today, as we've reflected on this church from so long ago, that you will make us, that you will shape us into a people who are able to express our faith, our hope, our love in really practical ways, practical ways that will demonstrate the love of Christ. That we will live as people uh, uh, filled with the knowledge that we've been chosen by you, grateful to you, but activated because of that. That we will be able to imitate Christ, that we will be able to walk consistently in Christ-like ways, speak in Christ-like ways, act in Christ-like ways. And that we'll be articulate, that we'll be wise that we will be gracious and that we will be loving in the manner in which we express the truth of the scripture in a world that actually is hungry in the same way that the world of the Thessalonians was hungry for something other than what they were getting. Lord, we thank you again today for your word. Bless us as we are challenged by it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.